Lord, we just come to you and thank you for how much you love and care for us. We thank you for your word. We ask you to bless this study. Let your Holy Spirit guide and lead us as we go through this section. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to be starting at verse 8. Uh, it's going to be an interesting one. I'm only going to read through it once. Uh, chapter 23. And I'll try not to say the names too many times thereafter. So, these be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the, the Tacmonite that sat in the seat chief among the captains, the same was Abino the Esnite. He lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahonahite, one of the three mighty men of David. When they had defied, defiled the, Israel, the Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel were gone away, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave into his sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shamath, the son of Agi, the Haraite, And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop and there was a piece of ground full of lintels and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory. The three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time into the cave of Adullam and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephirim and David was then in the hold and the, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me a drink of water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew the water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not the blood of the men that were, went into jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink, and these things did these three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zuriah, was chief among the three, among three, and he lifted up his spear against three hundred and slew them, and had a name among the three. Was he not most honorable of the three? Therefore he was their captain, howbeit he attained not unto the first three. And Benai, the son of Jehoiada, the son of, the, the son of a valiant man of Kaziel, who was done many acts, and he slew two lion-like men of Moab, and he went down also and slew a lion in the midst of the pit in the time of snow. He slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down unto him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. We're going to stop there for a moment because we're going to talk. These guys had the most most in their story. So we're going to talk about these guys to start with. So we look at these. We're going to be listing David's mighty men. These are the list of the men that followed David from way back before he was king all the way through as he became king. And it starts out with the three mighty men the, 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 of David on here. And he says is this uh, first man was Adino. He lifted up a spear and he slew 800 men. Now, one of the things that's funny about most of these guys in this long list are only men mentioned one other place, and that's in 1 Chronicles, chapter 11. And that topic on that chapter happens to be the same exact topic, the mighty men of David. 
Now, a couple of them you might recognize. We know a little bit more about a few of them. This man, we know that he killed 800 men. That's all we know about him. And, you know, you want to think, though, that's a pretty big deal in one battle to kill 800 men is a very big deal, especially in that time. They didn't have a machine gun. They didn't have a grenade launcher or anything like that. He would have had to have killed them with his sword or a spear in the midst of a battle. So this is a really big deal that he killed so many people in one, in one time. Then he goes to, then there was Eliezer. Now Eliezer's name is used a whole lot, but this one, the son of Dodo, is not the same Eliezer that's in other places because Eliezer was the second high priest of Israel. So his name is very common. But this man, he gathered together when everybody ran away. He went to the battle and he kept fighting until his hand stuck to his sword. You know, and I don't literally, I don't think it literally meant that it was glued to the sword, but I think it was just his hands had cramped into a position that he could not let go of the sword because of the cramping of his fingers. Uh, and it said he won a great battle. It didn't say how many people he killed, but you got to figure he fought long enough for his hand to cramp and stay in that place. David's men were very valiant men. They were very well known in battle. And it says after him was Shammah, and he went, stood in a field with lentils when everybody else ran, and he stood his ground and killed the Philistines so that he piled up the bodies around him in the lentil field. So we see here the top three men that David had were valiant. They were aggressive. They were mighty warriors. You know, to kill 800 men in one battle, to, to keep fighting while the sword is still you know, stuck to your hand because of it, and to be able to stand your ground when everybody else runs away is a pretty big deal. And two of them literally says everybody else ran away. They were left alone, and yet they stood their ground. These are the type of men that David had surrounded himself with. And David was no slouch himself, <laughs> all right? Uh, because we remember what caused Saul to get angry at David the most was when the women started saying, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, I don't know that David had killed tens of thousands of people at that time, but it really was an indication that David was giving a reputation. He went out of battle and people died. And lots and lots of people. You know, he probably did, was outdoing Saul. Uh, by, the, by their math, if you went with the math of the song, he was killing 10 people to every one that Saul killed, which would be a big deal even, even if it wasn't in the thousands. You know, if you want to say 10 to 1, Saul killed his, you know, his 50 and David had killed his 500. So we have this deal, and David's men around him were no, no slouches either. These guys were famous in their day. They would be like to us, a George Patton or, or the various men that we can look at, uh, Eisenhower, the, the various generals that have gone out into battle and come back, R Roosevelt charging up San Juan Hill, you know, being, being a very spectacular picture. These were the men David surrounded himself with uh, that just won victories. And we don't know how, how large a group these two Philistine groups were, but this one, each, in each case, one man defied, defeated the entire garrison that was going, coming against them, the entire group that came against him, whether it was a garrison of just 20, 25, or a full, you know, small, small onslaught of a couple hundred. We don't know, it doesn't tell us. But these men were famous. 
These were the type of men that David says, these are who I have around me. And it says, of these, uh, these are three of the 30 chief men. So David had 30 chief men around him. And there's more than 30 on this list because it's not just as chief that he names. And these were the, the three great ones. All right? These first three are the great ones named on here. And then he goes down a little further and he said, uh, and, there, and three of the 30 chief men went down and David came in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephidim and David was then in the hold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. The cave of Adullam is where David was hiding when he cut off the skirt of Saul's garment. So not only has he got Saul <laughs> looking for him, there's an army of the Philistines deep into Israel during that period of time. They are in Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem, which at this time Jerusalem does not belong to Israel. And he says they are camped in the Valley of Rephraim, which is that whole valley around uh, Bethlehem. And the garrison is in Bethlehem. And David is longing, because where is David from? He's from Bethlehem. This is the same time he's running from Saul? Um, the same cave anyway. Uh, many people believe it is, uh, but he's, it's before he's king, so he is running from Saul no matter what. Is it the same exact moment, the same exact time? Don't know. It would make sense that Saul showed up there not to go get David at that time, but to go fight the, go fight the Philistines. There's nothing there to indicate that, but it is the same cave. And David does something that uh, generals, captains have to be very careful of. He said he longed for some water from Bethlehem. And one of the things in the military, that military officers learn is just because they something, say something, some people will take it as an order. All right? The captain of a ship says, I would like such and such, and somebody's going to go run it. He may have just been longing for it at the moment and not really wanting it. Somebody that hears him say that is going to go run <laughs> and make sure he gets what he, what he wanted. Even if it's hard to get, they're going, David makes this kind of statement. You know, and his men love him enough to saying, okay, the, the general, the, the head, he wants it. We're going to go get it for him. And they go out and they go get, him, go get him a drink of water from Bethlehem. Which means wherever the cave is, they've got to cross the valley, which has a whole bunch of Philistines in it. Then they have to get to Bethlehem and get to the well of Bethlehem, which is going to have the garrison around it, then get the water, leave, Jer leave Bethlehem, go back through the valley with all the enemy <laughs> to come to David. This was a pretty brave thing that they did. It was a courageous thing that these men did, and David would not drink that water. Because as far as he was considered, it was almost blood money. You know, it's like, okay, you got it for me, but you guys put way too much too much danger involved in this. And it says he poured it out. He poured it out like a drink offering to the Lord and just dumped it out and, and praised God for, their, for them. But he says, I will not drink this water. Because to me, because to David, in David's mind, it represented blood. These guys, his, a couple of his chief men could have died. And David had enough honor for his men saying, I can't, I know you guys wanted this to be my blessing and everything, but I just can't take this water. It was, it was bought too preciously. 
And you go, have you ever received something that was just too precious for, you know, maybe not in, in dollars and cents, but it was just too precious because of how much the person sacrificed. You know, and it can be, sometimes we get those gifts where somebody just sacrifices and they spend more than they can afford, whether it's physical or by strength, and they say, this is for you, and it, it's touching. But you look at it and say, I can't believe that this is the price you paid. I think about that for our salvation. God paid a price that is just unbelievable, you know, and expects us to take it. In our case, he expects us to take it. But that price that he paid is something that just is mind-boggling to me. Jesus becoming flesh when he spent his entire eternity with God before that, going through a pretty rough life. You know, and it's always amazed me. You know, I would think if God was going to come, he wouldn't come down as a baby into the poor family. He'd have gone to some rich home and been treated, treated nice and had good food that he deserved because he's God. But he says, no, I'm going to come and be born into a poor working family. Honest family, but poor. Joseph was a hard worker. And, but we know that they were poor because the sacrifice that Mary made you know, for her purification was a turtle dove. That was the sacrifice of the poor. So we know that he was raised in a poor family, and he never had anything. He said to the one man who says, I want to follow you, and he goes, foxes have holes and birds their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, so he's saying, I don't even have a home. I don't have a home to, to be in. I'm living on the mercy of people. And I'm sure Jesus slept in beds occasionally and, and had places because he's got a lot of followers that would give him places to stay. But he said it, he has no place of constancy. He didn't know where he was going to stay. He was an itinerant preacher, just wandering around wherever. And that was back before the days of RVs where you could wander around in your RV and have your home on wheels. See, he just slept wherever. <laughs> But it didn't seem like he should have drank it because they did sacrifice all of that. I mean, because Jesus sacrificed all that. We accept his sacrifice. It's kind of a catch on it. If he had, it would have been the great honor to them. But in his mind, in this particular case, David considered it an abomination to drink of it because it represented their blood. So for David to have drank that, that water would have been sin for him because of what he saw it as. All right. Now, was it sin necessary? No, because you're right. It could have been, you guys offered so much, I'm going to really appreciate this, and I'm going to thank you for, for this. So it would not have been wrong for him to drink it if he had the right attitude about it. So it's about his attitude. His attitude made it wrong for him to drink it. Because he's going, no, this, this cost way too much. You guys, you guys put your life on the line just so I can have a cup of water, you know, or probably a pitcher of water or a canteen of water. So in that particular sense, because he saw it as wrong, it was wrong. Uh, we look at Uriah the Hittite when he came in, when David was trying to get him to sleep with Bathsheba. If he had gone in to sleep with his wife, there was really nothing wrong with that because he was on R&R. He had been called back. He could have had the perfect right to go at home and relax. But because his attitude was, I'm not going to enjoy something when my, my fellow men are on the field, it would have been wrong for him to have gone in to sleep, you know, to stay at his, his uh, home. So there's these things when we think it's wrong, then it's wrong. All right? And as I've shared with you, there's been people that come to me, well, can I do such and such? And I would usually will tell them, the very fact that you're asking me, can you do it, tells me that no, you can't. I can give you the verses on saying either direction, but if I am not 
And when I'm at liberty to do something, then that means I know that I can do it and I don't have any problems in doing it. If my spirit is telling me, no, I can't do it, it's wrong. And that's where we're on with David. David was saying, no, I can't do this. This is the cost of this drink of water is too great for me to enjoy the water. And for David, it would have been wrong to drink that water. Now, David could have just as easily gone the other direction, and then we would never have heard about it, probably. You know, the big part of it was David said, no, your sacrifice was too great. I'm not going to drink it. If he had drank the water, we probably never would have had a mention of it in the scriptures. So you're right. I mean, it, you know, on one side, we could have looked at it and said, wow, these guys loved you so much. They sacrificed greatly for you, David. Why don't you drink it? But for David, it was just too great a cost. And he couldn't, he couldn't, couldn't bear the idea of drinking drinking the water and, and enjoying the water that almost cost three men their lives or, or could have cost them their life. Because it, it says that they broke through the lines, which means that there were some problems somewhere along the prime. It wasn't they snuck through the lines and came back out. <laughs> they broke through the lines and indicates, it does not a proof of it, but it indicates that there was not just an easy trip in and out. All right, uh, somewhere along the line, somebody challenged them and there was a smallish battle somewhere along, along, the, along this process. Uh, but they, they, David says, far be it. You know, it was not worth it, and therefore he would not drink it because he says it represents their souls. They put their soul, their lives on in jeopardy. And for David, that was a big deal, a really big deal for him to do that. And again, these people we don't know much about, but we, we see them twice. This next person we know a little bit something about, Abishai. All right? Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, which is David's sister. So this is his nephews. And we know that Abishai is killed. <laughs> they, you know, but it says, Abishai, was, was he not the most... Uh, let's see. Uh, he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them. And had a name among them. So he gets, he gets credit for slowing, uh, slaying 300 people in one battle, not even with a sword, but with a spear. All right, This is a pretty big deal. A lance, killing 300 people with a lance, not, not bringing out a sword or anything. He gets credit for it. And he says, was he not most honorable of the three? And this is to get, one's, to get glory to oneself when he's talking about honor. He attained honor to himself. And he says, he gained honor. And uh, we look at this, and it says, therefore he was their captain, how be, be it he obtained not unto the first three. <laughs> this is kind of interesting, because he's obtained more than the other 30, but not to the top three. So, but it's kind of interesting that he said they had more honor, more honor than, than all. And we look at this and say, what does God say for giving us on it? He says, when we are weak, God is strong in us. When we are weak, God lifts us up. These men had great honor and great reputation in their day. But the sad thing is about them, it was all done in their own strength. How many people remember them other than the handful of people that read this list of names in the Bible? You know, these guys are long forgotten, yet David is remembered. And, you know, some of these other ones are, are remembered because of the other things they did. God lifts people up. And not in our own strength, because we've talked about this. When we do things in our own strength, usually that's where we're going to fail. You know, and this is very true. 
If I think I am strong in an area, I better look out because that's exactly where I'm going to get tested. Satan has this penchant for me because when we're weak in an area, we know we're weak and we usually turn to God and say, God, I need help in this area. If I think I'm strong, I usually don't go to God. And then Satan comes at me and all of a sudden I find myself falling in, my, in what, what I find is my strength. And this happens over and over in people's lives. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my own life. I've shared with you when, you know, in, in my early 20s, I got into workaholism and, and walked away from the church for a while. In my teens, if anybody had ever told me there's going to be a time when you'd go to church, I'm going, absolutely not. You guys are nuts. There's not going to be a time I'm, I would never go to church. Kind of like Peter when Jesus says, you're going to demi- deny me. Uh-uh, not me. You know, and I know that Peter believed that he wasn't going to deny Jesus. He had a lot of confidence in himself. Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. And who was the one he denied, himself, denied Jesus to the, the last final time? A little girl. <laughs> a little girl. And he denies, him, denies that he knows Jesus and really totally showed that his strength ended up being his weakness. And this is where we need to be with God, that we're recognizing, God, we need you for everything. Even in where I think I'm strong, God, I need you where I think I'm strong. Because that's where we're going to fall. And I've seen it over and over. People don't usually fall on their weakness because that's what they put a guard on. I'm not going to let this, I'm, I know I'm weak in here, I've got a temptation here, and I'm not going to let this be my problem. <laughs> and we put a guard on there. We bring God into the situation. But when we think we're strong, we don't put a guard on it. These men had some problems. <laughs> they were strong men. They, they were very uh, determined to get their own way in many cases. But it says, Abishai was attained. Then it talks about Benaiah. And it says, he slew two lion-like men of Joab. Now, I'm not sure what a lion-like man is. The word there in Hebrew means lion-like. <laughs> uh, big, strong, shaggy, who, know, who knows what lion-like means? Probably, I'm thinking strong and ferocious. And if that wasn't enough, he also, he also said he went down into a, the pit and fought a lion in the, in the pit. All right, a real lion. Not, just, not men like lions, but he went down and fought a real lion in a pit in the time of snow, and I'm not quite sure what the time of snow was supposed to mean, other than his footing might, be, might, might not be as good. But you don't want to fight a lion in a pit in the first place. It, it uh, puts you at a great disadvantage. You can't run, the lion can't run. And when you're in a pit and something cannot run, the most dangerous animal, the most dangerous time with a human being, if you're in a battle, is when they cannot run. They cannot escape because they have nothing to lose. And they're in the middle of a pit, the lion can't get out of the pit, it's going to be very vicious. You know, it can't, it can't run. Uh, if your back is, you know, if you've got your back up against a wall and you cannot run, you become very vicious if you're trying to save your life. All right? So this is a very big battle. You know. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, he, he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man or a spectacular strong man is what it really comes down to. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hands, and he went down with him with a staff, plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. (laughs) All right, so this is a pretty big deal. This is a strong, big warrior. He has a staff, and he takes the the spear away from the warrior and kills him with his own spear. It's quite a battle. It would make a great movie, movie scene. All right, 
the guy with the staff is not supposed to win against the spear. And yet, he takes the staff away from this man who is a strong warrior. Uh, so we look at these. These are the key people that David had. We've got five people listed here that are the really top dogs. <laughs> All right, These are the ones we get a little bit of story about. We hear about them. And God says, these are David's chief men. David had men that when it came down time to support him, they were ready. And they had the physical capabilities of defending David. And they were going to be his chief guard over all these years. They're going to be his protectors. They're going to be his, his inner circle. If he needs something done, he turns to these, these men, these mighty men of his. And he knows that they're going to get the job done. They've been, they've been victorious. When all odds are against them, especially these top guys, they've been victorious and gotten the job done. And uh, we, we see all of this going on. All right, verse 22. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had a name among the three mighty men. He was more honorable than the thirty, but he attained not unto the first three, and David set him over his guard. And Asiel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanam, the son of Dodo, of Bethel, the Bethlehemite. Shammah, the Harodite. Elikah, the Harodite. Hazel, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ichkesh, the Tekoite. Abazir, the Anathothite. Mibunai, the Hushanite, Zalman the Ahoite, Maharai the Nethoite, Helab the son of Benaiah the Nethoite, Itai the son of Ribbai, out of Gibeah of the children of Benjamin, Benaiah the Parathonite, Hidaya of the brooks of Gaash, Abalban, the Arbathite, Asbaveth, the Barhumite, Elijah, the Shaubonite, the sons of Jeshan, Jonathan, Shamuth, the Hararite, Ahiram, the son of Zarah, the Hararite, Eliphalet, the son of Ahishbai, the son of Malkaachatite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileanite, Hezrei, the Carmonite, Paaro, the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan, of Bozobah, Vani, the Gadite, Zelech, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Beherothite, Armor-bearer to Joab, the son of Zerai, Ira the Ithrite, Gera of the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite. 37 in all. All right. So we see here the list of David's mighty men. 37 of them listed out there that David says, these are the special ones. These are my Men, they would be the hall of fame, fame of the of David's army. All right, uh, out of this list, we don't know much about any of these guys. 
All right? We don't know much about it. We know that uh, Ahishaphel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. So both, the, both of his uh, nephews were in, in his inner circle. Uh, we look at, as we go down this list, uh, at the very end of this list, we see Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. You know, which kind of makes it really even more sad that when David orchestrated the murder of Uriah, it was one of his chief men that he was murdering so that he could take the man's wife. It was bad enough that he had him murdered. It's bad enough that it was, you know, that he took his wife. But to find, as we look in here, that Uriah is one of the main men of David makes it even, even worse. When he looked down at Bathsheba, he had to have known something about Bathsheba. I mean, he's looking down on Uriah's house. Who did he think he was getting, calling up to his apartment? You know, plus, his, plus his servant said, no, you can't do that. She's already married. All right, and David still did it. No, he had to have known whose house he was looking down on and probably had met Bathsheba in some, you know, this is one of his key men. Bathsheba was not a stranger to David overall because he would have had dinners with the, with the, with the men. They would have met the wives. He would have met the families of, the, of his key men. Back then, they had dinners with the wives? Eh, sometimes, sometimes not, but he would have known who they were. He had to know, he had to know, he would have been, a, he, you know, even if he had done nothing but gone to the man's house, you know, and if they had come, even if they had come, the husbands and wives would come together, the wives would go off someplace else, but David would have seen, seen these women, you know, as they came in, most likely, <laughs> you know, but it's the same thing in, he's killed somebody important on him, and that, that just strikes me when I read this section, Uriah, totally uh, David's man willing to take whatever David said and ends up dying at David's hand when he was one of David's me- chief men. Now, which tells us how far David had fallen during that period of time when he wasn't where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to be doing and walking in his flesh. Which also goes to tell us how bad we can be when we walk in our flesh and turn from God's ways for however long we do it. We can end up doing some really horrendous activities. And this is where David was when he, went, when, when he did this. And yet, they make sure that Uriah is listed in that list of David's mighty men. Because he was. He was with David. And we look through here and we see all these different interesting names and places and, and everything. But we look at this list and we compare it and we know so little about any of these men. I don't know if it's the same Ahithophel. I think it is probably because of the timing on it, but I don't know. Nobody knows whether it is. I do believe it might have been the son of Ahithophel that was in David's army because Ahithophel was David's uh, advisor. Ahithophel was the, I always get it wrong, either the grandfather or the uncle of Bathsheba, so that was one of the reasons that he was so upset with David taking Bathsheba. He's the one that went against David. So it very well could be his son, along with Uriah, and all of that in there. But there's no proof of that. Okay, we recognize the name. We say, yep, that sounds like his name. Might be. 
it's right at the same time, it's the perfect time for it to be, to be true, all right? Uh, because whether it's the uncle or grandfather, he's in that next generation, so the Uriah would be at the right age to be the compatriot of Ahithophel and being that his son. I would not take it in strong because nobody knows for sure whether it is. All right, because uh, the timing is, is perfect for it. And we look at this, and not a whole lot is known about any of these guys. Uh, we've took the first group, we know a lot about, you know, a lot about a couple of them. The first three, we know nothing about other than the two references they have. We get into the sons of Zariah, we know quite a bit about them. They, they're famous, they're talked about all the time because they're David's generals. So we know a lot about them. Um, but we don't know a whole lot about any of these guys out there. And I thought there was one I wanted to talk about. Let me. I missed something on one of these. Okay, I know why it's not, because it's in uh, Chronicles. Chronicles will talk about many of David's men killing uh, Goliath's sons and, and, and brothers. Uh, and so he has a couple of these guys that we have a little bit more known about if you go to Chronicles, First uh, Chronicles 11, verses uh, 15 through 19, you'll see the same list, and they'll talk about the uh, Goliath's uh, dependents' uh, families being killed by these men. And one of them had a little bit of deformity. He had six fingers and six toes on each hand and foot. Uh, one of Goliath's uh, relatives that had that. But uh, we look at here, and again, First uh, Chronicles 11 has David's mighty men, and it talks a little bit more about some of them. And when we get to Chronicles, we'll talk more about those. <laughs> so, done with that long list of names. <laughs> no, not again. <laughs> Chapter 24. <laughs> and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said unto Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through the tribes of Israel and Dan, even to Beersheba, and number you the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord your God add unto your people, How many, how many soever they be, a hundredfold, that the eyes of the Lord, the king, may see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host, and Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So we're looking here at this incident. This happened, we do not know when, all right? David appears to be somewhat young at the time on it because we're, we just read his last words. We had the list of his people, now we're going to this, this, uh, this time. And... God was angry with the people of Israel, most likely for idolatry, because even in David's time, he hadn't wiped out idolatry. Um, and it, it says that Satan moved David to count the tribes. Now we say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the problem was that David was trying to be prideful. God, I have this many men in my army. And God had told his people, it doesn't matter how many people you have, because I am your God. I am your strength. I am your deliverer. And David was going out and saying, I want to know, I want to know how big my army is. I, and you can almost hear the pride in his voice. You know, I have got 400,000 men at my disposal. I can go do whatever I want. 
and he counts them from Dan all the way to Beersheba. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us necessarily, but for us Americans, it might be something along the lines of the, the, those were north and south, but we might say, I want everything, everybody counted between New York and LA. Okay, that's what he was saying here. Everything from the most northern part of my kingdom all the way down to the most southern part of my kingdom, you count every man who's able to, to go to war. All right, so he wasn't even asking for his army. He was saying, I want to know what the largest army I can put together is. That was the problem with this. He was taking pride in saying, my strength, my strength, not God's strength. Because what does God say? He went to Gideon, and Gideon gathered 30,000 men, and God says, you have too many. He drops it down to 10,000 men, and God goes, you still have too many. Gets it down to 300, and God says, now you've got just the right people for me to go up against the 100,000 that we're going to fight so that I get the credit. Here David was forgetting all about what God said. He'd forgotten all about the fact that God is his strength. God would make him win no matter what. And he's going out and saying, I want to know how many fighting men we have in all of Israel. He was not even calling an army. It was just literally, I want to know how many men we have available to fight. And so he's basically saying, God, you're not my strength right now. I'm going to put my strength and my trust in the arm of flesh. I'm going to find out how big my army is so that when it comes time, I know how big the army is. And that's the problem here. That's the problem here that uh, David is going through. He's not trusting God. He moved, he moved David against them. Uh -huh. In other words, he took his hand off and allowed it to happen. There was a temptation, and he fell for it. Okay. All right? And this is where we have, we're never tempted by God. We are tested by God, and it, when we fall, it's a temptation that we fall to because we didn't trust God. Okay. All right? So, yes, and David's going to face, when we get to the end of this chapter, David's going to face a punishment for having done this. No. God let him do it more than moved him. Yeah, God didn't say, go do this. But he basically let Satan come in, influence him into, in, into his pride, and lift up his hands. Huh? Yeah. Moved. Yeah, he's got a King James at the moment. Uh, but basically it comes down to God let this happen. David wanted to do it, and God said, okay, fine. And, you know, maybe even kind of go, okay, David, where, where's your heart right now? Because God's angry with the whole people, and David is their leader. And usually people go the direction of their leader. All right? And it's true of all businesses. You know, whoever the manager, the, the leader is, that people will be like them. And in a nation, we tend to follow our leaders as well. And David obviously has some problems right now. God is angry you know, with Israel and Judah, and he's going to let David go the wrong way. You know, how did he let him? Didn't send a prophet to him to kind of explain to him. You know, didn't remind him, David, you're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to trust in me. So he let David go his way. Now, Joab is kind of showing some good sign here in verse 3. <laughs> you know, he goes, David, uh, you don't need to count the people. You know, uh, how many do you care if it's a hundredfold? And the eyes of the Lord my king see, why do you need, why does the king delight in such a thing? In other words, he understands God has been our delivering all the way through, David. 
David, when we go to war, you always go to God in the first place and ask, should we go to war? Why do you care how many men are available? And this really goes down to some pride. I don't know who David was trying to impress at this time. You know, maybe, maybe there was some king or, you know, king or prince or something doing a royal visit on, you know, maybe they bragged about their army. So David's going to go, okay, I need to know how big my army is so I can, you know, I can tell them. Who knows? We don't know exactly why, but he's moved to go count the people, which is something that he wasn't supposed to do because it indicates that he's putting his trust in flesh and not God. And then it says in verse 4, you know, this is not a place where David gave up. He goes, I want them counted. Wanted them counted. You know, how many times when we get into our sin and we're ready to make that sin and we hear a message on the radio, we hear a pastor, we hear counsel, and we just decide, I don't care, I'm going to do this. That's where David was at. He's getting, even Joab counseling, don't do this, David. We, you know, you're, God is our, delivering, our deliverer, and David says, I don't care. I am going to do this. Pretty much the same thing when he had, went with Bathsheba. He had the servant say, hey, she's, she's married to another man. And David says, I don't care, bring her. You know, David had a few of those places. <laughs> but we do too. You know, we all have had places where we just decide we are going to do what we know we're not supposed to do because we want to do it. Hopefully those are not very often. But I've had a couple of times when I've just said, I'm going to do this. I don't care, I'm going to do it. It's never fun. It's never as pleasurable as you think it is, <laughs> so especially when you're doing it that, that uh, overtly and you know it's wrong. It's one thing to fall into sin and enjoy the temporary you know, uh, pleasures of sin. But it's a whole other thing when you know you're doing wrong and you're under conviction the whole time and there's just no pleasure in it, at least in my case, no pleasure at all in those times I remember choosing to sin. You know, purposely, on purpose, David's going to be in that same place and there's going to be repercussions for him doing this activity. It says in verse 5, And they passed over Jordan and pitched into... And Joe, the wind numbered, and they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aor on the right side of the city that lies in the midst of the river of Gad and towards Zazir. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Timhold. And they came down to Danjiran and about to Zidon and came to the stronghold of Tyre and all the cities of the Hittites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba, so that when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto the king that were in Israel, 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So David goes out, spends nine months counting his people. Nine months and uh, two-thirds of a month counting his people to find out that he has a million, uh, 1.3 million people ready for war. That's a pretty big army. That's a big potential army. And it's exactly what David was looking for for his pride. This is a time when a big army is two or 300,000. And David counts his men and finds out that he can, he can put an army out of 1.3 million people. 
and you can just picture the pride in his heart. Look at this. I can stand up to anybody. I have a very large population. And a lot of people have looked at this number and said, well, there's no way they had that many people. Well, the Bible says they did. So I'm going to believe that the Bible says that there was. This was a time when most of your cities only had 10 or 20,000 people in them. So this was a big job to count his people and come up with this number. All of Israel, the entire nation of Israel, of fighting men. This isn't even all the people. You know, you figure that if this is your fighting men, most of the fighting men are going to be married, and most of them are going to have two or three kids. So we're talking about a very large population at this time. Israel is at its heyday. All right? So we're looking at, you know, 2.6 just with wives. And that doesn't even count the people that are too young to fight or too old to fight. So he's looking and a couple of kids for each one. So you're probably looking at about 5.2 with just two kids per family. 5.2 million. And you're going to have a number of other people that are too old. So we're talking, talking somewhere about 5.5 to 6 million people wow. in Israel. How many people live in Israel now? Uh, I do not know. <laughs> I'd have to look that up. Okay. Uh, I know everything, yeah. This is a large army, and it's making David proud. And that's why David went out to do it. How big an army? <laughs> Look at me, and then he could turn to whatever king or embassy. Uh, yeah, you think, you think your 500-man army is? I've got, I've got 1.3 million people available. Matter of fact, I've got 500,000 just in Judah, not even counting Israel. And that's the kind of pride that was coming out of David. God, I don't need you. I've got, I can stand on my own. And this is at the heyday. David took most of the land that belonged to Israel before he died. And when we say belonged to Israel, all the land that was promised to Abraham. He had all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. He had all the way to the Jordan and beyond. He had down to the wilderness of Sin, down toward Egypt. And he had all the way up to the Euphrates. He had all the land Israel, or most of the land that Israel was supposed to have and Solomon in his heyday added the rest of it. And that's the only time Israel has ever owned all of the territory that God has promised them. I don't know about one tenth. They had almost all of it. They might have been missing one tenth. And I've heard the same thing. I've heard people, but in David's day, they had, David and Solomon's day, from the Mediterranean to the... Now the question is, how well did they hold it? Yeah. <clears throat> and that may be why some of them say they only had one-tenth. All right, but they had... They either were directly in control of all land or they had tributaries coming into them, paying, paying them. So it's really going to depend on how you break down. You know, is somebody that's paying you tribute for, for three generations part of your land? Yeah. Probably. Uh, same thing when we look at Egypt. Egypt, when it was a great kingdom, had all of North Africa, all the Middle East was technically part of the Egyptian empire. Now, many of it was tributaries, but they counted them as their territory. So that when Abraham was walking all through the promised land, technically he was walking in Egypt. Then they were pulled from Egypt later on because that's how large and powerful Egypt was. So we see a lot there, and, it's, and again, were they technically part of Egypt? There's some historians that will, 
parse that out and say, no, this one had its own little government. Yeah, they were paying 80% tax to Egypt, but they were, you know, and when you were paying that much tax, you're part of that country. So, and I understand what they say. Uh, I, I've always looked at it. You look at the maps and you, you know, go to the back of your Bible, look at your map, what David and Solomon owned. <laughs> it covers the entire, entire place. Yes, some of it was just people paying tribute. But as far as Solomon and David were considered, they were part of their kingdom. All right. And most of that be, was because Israel never conquered their, conquered their nations in the first place. If they had done their job way back in Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, or Joshua, and took all the land and killed all the people they were supposed to kill, there would have been nobody to take tribute from because those nations would have been gone and it would have all been Israel. That would have included the Philistines who were a pain in the neck to them from all the way into David and Solomon's day, uh, the Canaanites who were, you know, causing problems, the, you know, all these other ites in there that were still around causing problems all the way to David and Solomon's days because they had their little territories. Little territories that were paying tribute, but they were still there in the, what they considered their land, even though Israel considered it their land. And that's where we're at today in today's world. We have Israel, and we have their enemies all pocketed through their country that think it's their land. And Israel says, no, this is our land. And by the way, over here is supposed to be ours, and over there is supposed to be ours, and that's supposed to be ours. And we're going to take it one day, uh, which is what's causing a lot of the problems. Now, when the Israelites moved back to Israel in 48, they were given the land by an international agreement, but they ended up buying most of the land because they weren't waiting for the courts to settle, settle the claims. So they bought all the land from the Arabs, and at the time it was swamp land. It was miserable, terrible land, and when the Arabs sold it to them at more, pri more price than it was worth at the time, they laughed all the way to the bank, thinking we took, we took these suckers for, for everything they're worth, and then they drained the land, turned it into wonderful farming land and productive land, and now they're now the Arabs want the land back. They're supposed to be Palestinians? Huh? The Pal you gotta remember there's no such thing as the Palestinians. There's no such people as the Palestinians. But the Canaanites, Israel, you know, all the ites that still existed are living in were, were living in that area when Israel was kicked out. Because Rome did not just kick them out and leave the land empty. They said, okay, we're gonna move people back into this land and we're gonna let people have this cheap. We got rid of these guys. You know, what am I bid for this house? What am I bid for this, this piece of land? What am I bid? And they sold it off cheap, like all government auctions would have been. They made money, and then they made taxes on the money because, you know, the land when they auctioned it off. So they were sold illegally, <laughs> not technically <laughs> illegally, but it was sold out from under the rightful owners. And because the Israelites never sold their land because it was part of their inheritance. And that's still how it's looked at today, even though it's not fully implemented. This land belongs to Judah. This land belongs to ben uh, Benjamin. This land belongs to Dan. This one, you know, this land belongs to the tribe of Gad. And so they, they look at it that way. They haven't come complete circle yet to say it, it's not to be sold. Uh, and when they sold their property according to the scripture, you sold it only until the year of, Ju the, the year of Jubilee when it all went back, 50, 50 years. Every 50 years, it went back to the person who owned it. So the price of the land started out very low 
if you had 50 years to go to Jubilee, the price of the land was low because, uh, extremely, extremely high because you had 50 years to use it. And the closer you got to Jubilee, the lower the price of the land became because you could only have it for one or two years and had to give it back. So that was their mentality all the way through David's time, all the way through uh, really up until Jesus, uh, up until Babylon took them out of their land. And so we see this whole process and the Jews believe it's their land. God gave it to them. It belongs to the tribes and it should never be sold to anybody, including themselves, if they're, especially for the Orthodox. And there will be a time when that becomes the true again when Jesus reigns. They'll be given their inheritance and he knows exactly who gets what inheritance. He doesn't need a DNA test to prove who gets what inheritance. So he gets this count of 1.3 million people in his country. And it's kind of interesting, verse 10, And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this now. I beseech you, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So here we have David. Now we understand. David understood. My pride has caused me to do this. Now he's got a real problem. He knows the number of his people. It's hard to forget something like that and, and not put your faith and trust in that number when he shouldn't have known it in the first place. And this is the problem that we have sometimes when we get to know something that we shouldn't know about somebody or about something. And all of a sudden, what does that do? It colors the way we think about that person from that part of. Why? Because we listen to a gossip, we listen to a tale out of school, and all of a sudden we know, and every time we see that person, uh, well, I know, I know, uh-huh, I know, I know who you are. I know what you've done. And it gets very hard sometimes to be forgiving and loving to somebody, especially if we only know one side of the story. And that's what David has done. Now he's got this pride in his heart, and he goes, God, I have really messed up. I have messed up. Forgive me. I have been foolish. Verse 11, For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer you three, three things. Choose one of them, that I may do it unto you. So Gad came to David and said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from before your enemies while they pursue you? Or will there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall on the hand of man. So David is given three choices as a consequence for his sin. You know, neither, none of these choices are very good ones. First one, all right, David, you want to endure seven years of famine. That's a long time to have a famine. That's a long time people will get a little upset at their king because the king is not supposed, you know, has led them into this problem. Then he goes, okay, how about spending three months running from your enemies? All right, David's been spending an entire lifetime running from enemies, so this is not a great choice for him. If I was David, I would have chosen that one. 
give me three months running from my enemies. Yes, I know I'm kind of, I've gotten soft being in my king's, king's bed, but you know, let me, let me run from my enemies. Uh, or three days of pestilence, great disease. And we know when God moves with pestilence, thousands of people die. So this is not a great choice for David either. Out of these three choices, if I had been David, I would have said, okay, God, just let me run for three months from my, from my enemies. One thing would be nice. I know it's only three months. And well, he'd take his, take his mighty men, but it's not. Now, while he's running, that means the government may have some problems and everything, but, uh, you know, because he's not there. So somebody could try to take, take his place. So it could be, from his perspective, Absalom's tried to take his place. Uh, you know, he's had Saul, Saul given him trouble. You know, Saul's, Saul's descendants have kind of popped up here and there. So it's not his number one choice, but it would probably be the best as far as a king. Okay, God, you know, let me be the one that bears this. I, I sin, let me bear, bear the punishment. It also points out to us, though, that sometimes our sin does not just affect us. Usually, it does not just affect us. God is saying your whole nation can suffer, a small portion of it, but it's going to be a couple hundred, you know, a couple tens of thousands, hundred thousand people dying of sickness, or you can go run, which also has the impact of the government falling apart for three months. So we've got no, no good choice here. No good choice presented to David. And David says, I'm in great straits. I, I am so, you know, I don't know what to say. I fall upon God's mercy. You know, which is probably a good thing to do. God, I'm going to let you choose. All right. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning until the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. This is a major disease striking Israel to cause 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented of, his ev of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aranah, the Jebusite. So right outside Jerusalem, God says, okay, it's enough. Enough people have died. Now we see this over and over in the scriptures. When somebody rebels, you got the Korite rebellion and God swallows up Korah and his family and all the others that rebelled against him were swallowed up and killed. God has struck down people with fire and it's not always just the one person who sins. This is one of the things we have to keep in mind when we are looking at any sin. There's consequences and it's not just me or it's just not you who's going to suffer. Innocent, quote unquote, people suffer when we sin. And it happens over and over again. And we can all think of times in our life where we did something that was dumb, that was sin, and had impact that covered more than just us. You know, somebody goes out, gets drunk, drives, and kills somebody. Now their life is messed up. Their family's life is messed up. The family of the person who's killed is messed up. You know, the community suffers, all because that person got behind the wheel when they couldn't even think straight or see straight. How many times have we made decisions that just weren't the right decision and the family suffered, or even the church suffered? There's times when churches suffer if, if enough people start listening to rumors and gossips and split the church. All right? 
always got a consequence and it always is harsh. In this case, 70,000 people died because David chose to count the people. That's a harsh penalty for David's pride. And you know, this is just another place where David's going to look back on his life and say, I lost 70,000 people because I got prideful. You know, my, I've got a sword in my family because I did not take care. I took uh, Bathsheba to be my wife. You know, my concubines were slept with by, by my son because I committed this sin and God is punishing. David has many instances in his life when he's going to look back and say, all these trials and all these people hurt because of my sin. <laughs> he, knew, well, he knew Jesus and that's why he was able to get forgiven. But by the same token, you know that he had to come, that had to cross his mind. Satan would have made sure that it crossed his mind. David, look how bad you are. You, 70,000 people died because of you. David, look how bad you are. Your, your concubines really suffered because of you. Now, you've got a sword in your family. Your, your, your kids are killing each other, and it's all because of you. You know that he was doing that to him because it doesn't take much for Satan to attack us. I mean, we don't have these kind of big issues in most cases, and yet Satan still attacks us. And here David has this problem. Verse 17 says, David spoke unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people. So David actually saw this angel as it's approaching Jerusalem. He says, Lo, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let, my, let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. So David all of a sudden is broken. 70,000 of his people have died. And now he comes back to, I should have chosen me to run. Because that's what I said. Well, when I looked at that list, I'm going, to me, the answer was obvious. Let me run for three months. Don't, don't, hurt, don't hurt my people. Don't make them suffer for seven years. Don't let certain, you know, people get killed by disease. You know, God, it was my fault. And David had that option, and he didn't choose. And that's the thing that's kind of mind-boggling to me. You know, but it also shows you where David's at, his pride. I'm not going to leave my palace. I can't, I'm not going to run. I don't want to run for three months. I don't want to leave my palace. I don't want to have my government go into chaos for three months. But it was only going to be three months. It's not like when he was running from Saul and didn't know how many you know, didn't know how many years it was going to be. Here he knows three months, and yet he doesn't choose it, but he sees, and all of a sudden his, his heart of the shepherd comes out of him and saying, God, I really messed up. These, these are innocent people that shouldn't be dying because of my mistake. He says, stop this and, and come against me. Come against me and my family. Don't come against all of Israel. Verse 18, and Gad came that day to David and said, go up, rear up an altar to the Lord in the threshing hold of Ahurai the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Ahurai looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Ahurai went out and bowed himself before the king on, and with his face on the ground. And Ahurai said, wherefore is my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing hold of you and to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Aranah said unto David, Let the Lord my king take and offer up that which seems good unto him. Behold, here are oxen for a burnt offering, and the threshing hole instruments, and other instruments of the ox of wood, oxen of wood, for wood. All these things did Aranah as the king, all these things did Aranah as the king, Give to the king. And Aranah said to the king, The Lord your God accept you. And the king said unto Aranah, 
No, but I will surely buy it of you at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God that does not cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing hold and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed in Israel. So David is told, go make an offering. And he goes and... Arana is ready just to give David. David, take it. You're king. It's all yours. And the beauty of this is, here is another test for David. David is already, he was so prideful, he counted his people. He was too prideful to say, let me run for 30, you know, run for 30 days. The people are now being hurt. And here's this next thing. David could have said, okay, good. It's not going to cost me anything to make this offering. You know, his pride has now been broken, and we see that. Because he could have just said, okay, I'm, I'm still prideful. And if he had done that, God probably would not have accepted the offering because David would have been doing it in his pride. But he says, no, I cannot make an offering to God that doesn't cost me anything. He goes, I must buy the land. I must buy the, the oxen that I'm going to sacrifice. I cannot just take them. Even though you're willing to give them to me, because this, go, this is a, one more play. This whole chapter is all about David's pride. One more play, David could have gotten pride, prideful and say, oh, here, all right, I get to follow the, the, the prophet's advice. I get to, I get, I'm given this land, I can build an altar, and I didn't even have to take my own animals to offer. He's even given me the wood. I didn't have to go buy wood and say, this is perfect. I can go offer the sacrifice to God and not cost me anything. But David is aware enough that anything we offer to God must cost us something. Must. Otherwise, it's not truly a sacrifice to God. And this is very important. You know, people will ask, how much should I give to God? Well, you know, one of the things I've been hearing a lot, and I really am truly beginning to understand and, and, and under, uh, believe it, is it really an offering if I give it out of my abundance? God, I'm giving you my leftovers. I, you know, I have 30%. I, haven't, I'm, I made so much this last, this last month, I can give you 30% above what I'm known to spend, and it's not going to hurt me at all. Have I really offered God an offering? Probably not in his eyes because it didn't cost me anything. Sacrifices should cost something. If it's not, we have a problem. This is why God tells us we're to offer our tithes and offerings. And I really truly believe that the tithe is the minimum. All right? The tithe is the minimum we give God. And that's what he expects. That's what he says he wants. Offerings are anything above that. And people will go, well, I can afford to do it. No. The real offering and real sacrifice is something that I can't afford. I look to God and say, God, I really can't afford this, but I'm going to trust in you to help out. And that doesn't mean be foolish and give away everything, but it does mean, God, I, you know, okay, you want 10%? 10% is in my budget. <laughs> okay, it's in my budget. I get money, 10% goes to God. Offerings are everything above that. And God is saying, what is that sacrifice? When I give to God saying, God, I really can't afford this, but I want, I want to give this to you, that's when God says, okay, you've done it. The widow at the, at the temple that gave her two mites, not even a penny, and God says, she has given everything, you know, more than anybody because she's given everything. And he had just watched all these people pouring in large amounts of money that were their surplus. They weren't going to miss it. They were rich. They did it for show. Let me pour this bag of gold in here. 
I've got 20 more bags at home, but I'm going to pour this in and it's going to look really good. She puts in everything she has. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and find out the rest of her story because I don't think she died that night. You know, I don't think she died that night. I, want to, I, I really want to go out and find the widow who gave her, to, gave her all to God and say, can you tell me the rest of the story? What happened to you after that day when Jesus watched you? Because I really don't believe that she, she ended up going home starving to death and died the next day or even the next week. I think she was going to be like the widow of Zerath who took her little a bowl of flour, a little, bowl, little curse of oil, and the prophet said, make me a cake first and you're not going to run out. And you could, you could know she was looking at that okay? because she said, I only have enough for me and my son and we're only going to have small cakes. But she made it with the prophet and never ran out of oil or flour until the end. God says, you were willing to sacrifice? Here's your reward. And sacrifice is very important for us to be able to look at. God wants sacrifice. He doesn't want to say, all right, well, you've got, you've got 30 extra dollars and you gave me 30 extra dollars? Okay, big deal. You've got 30 extra dollars and you gave me 60 dollars? <laughs> you know, and you have challenged God to provide? God says, all right, now we've got, now we've got an offering. Now you get to see what I can do. And watch what God can do. And it's very important. We see it over and over. People saying, God, I'm just lifting this up to you and watching what God can do. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the gold and silver in those hills and, and he will provide our needs. Now he may redefine our needs, especially for us as Americans. He may redefine and say, well, what you think you need is not what you need. You know, I'm going to give you your food. I'm going to give you your, your housing. I'm going to give you your utilities, but I'm not giving you the yacht the, the, the yacht and the 60-inch and the screen TV and the, and the retirement cabin and the, and the boat and the, and the snowmobile and all this stuff. He goes, you don't need those things. You know, but he'll say, I will meet your needs. And being a good father, he meets more than our needs. He will give us blessings oftentimes as long as we will keep focused on him and not the blessings. Because too many times we get wrapped up in the blessings and we take our eyes off the giver and start looking at the gifts. And that's when God pulls back and says, okay, your eyes are on the gifts. You go ahead and take care of your gifts. I'm not giving you anything more. And usually he'll take the gifts away and then just meet our needs. So David is here at the end. And he finally, at the end of this chapter, gets it right. He starts being brokenhearted when he sees his people. And then when that heart is broken... He's willing to make sure that he's not going to get prideful. This man's willing to give me everything I need to serve God. He's going to say, no, I can't give anything to God that I haven't purchased. And he gives him a pretty good, pretty good amount of money. 50 shekels of gold is a pretty good, pretty good uh, price for, for land back then. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask you to go with us as we go about our business and Help us to remember to stay focused on you and all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.